It's nice to be here again. Uh, I say again because uh, from 1985 to about 1990, this was my church home. That uh, goes back a ways. Uh, and I know, uh, hopefully we get the photo up there. I'm working on my slide. There we go. So that photo is from 1990, a big church group photo right out front here. And I just uh, I just wanted to say it's really great to be here again. Um, I know most of the people who were there then aren't here any longer, although I found out Renate is still here, and she, she was here back then. So um, anyway, it's really great to be here again and to be here with you. Um, let me, before I begin preaching, let me please say a prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? God, our Father, help us to worship you truly today. Lord Jesus Christ, help us to hear your word clearly today. And Holy Spirit, I surrender to you and I ask, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week, Pastor Tim started a sermon series titled Seven Last Sayings of Jesus. The series is designed, of course, to help you know Jesus more intimately. We don't just know facts. We don't just have a book that we read occasionally. But we have a person in the Savior, Jesus Christ. So the goal is to meditate on the meaning of his death on the cross, which we just sang about so beautifully, and uh, to prepare ourselves for the celebration of his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Jesus had made disciples, he had shown signs and miracles, and he had proclaimed his identity for three years. But many did not understand and they did not want to hear he was rejected, he was betrayed, tried and tortured, and finally he was put to death in the most humiliating way possible. He was crucified in public between two convicted criminals while the crowds jeered and the soldiers divvied up his garments and his friends scattered and his mother watched in horror. Today, I'm preaching the second sermon in the series, so I've been thinking a lot about the seriousness of a person's final moments and the last things people say before they die. Besides revealing some of the last words that Jesus spoke before he died, today's passage also includes the last moments and final words of those two criminals. If you have ever been with a person when they died, then you know the weight of what we'll actually be reading. It's a sacred moment, and usually it's a very private one, but we're going to read all about the death of these three men. In reality, we're also going to be forced to look into our own souls as well. We must wind up reflecting on what our final moments might be like. 
What would we say with our last words? Because we're dropping in on such a personal and serious moment, we need to prepare ourselves for this passage. So I want us to pause. Uh, Usually this is the kind of thing we do at the end of a sermon to reflect, to, to pause and reflect. But I would like us to go into this sermon pausing and reflecting. I want you to to think quietly and very seriously for a moment about how you felt when someone you know, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, someone you know or love has passed away. I want you to think about how that felt, what, what your heart went through. I want you to think about how you would feel if you had been present at that person's last moments. What it would have been like to hear their final words. I also want you to think about how you would feel in your final moments. Think about What would you choose to be your final words in your last moments? So as we go through this sermon, as we go through this passage in Luke 23, we need to stay in that respectful, quiet, somber mood as we go through this text because we are peeking into this very private, very personal final moments of these three on the crosses. I've titled the sermon, The Final Words at the Crossroads, because as we examine Luke 23, 39 through 43, we are faced with the unavoidable truth that death is a crossroads. Indeed, we will see that the cross of Christ is a crossroads For everyone, actually. It's a crossroads for the criminals who were executed with Jesus. For the misguided and jeering onlookers. For the soldiers who carried out the execution. And even for the whole world, the cross is a crossroads. Finally, it's a crossroads for you and for me. I'm going to ask you to stand again as we, as I read the text aloud. It's going to be displayed on the screen. Please stand with me. Um, you can read along silently. I'm going to read the text aloud. Holy Spirit, open our eyes now. Open our hearts as we worship in the word. Luke 23, 39 to 43 says, One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then turning to Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Keep your Bibles open, please, if you have them. <clears throat> a, a good old-fashioned book or digital device. Keep your Bibles open to the passage so that you can stay rooted in the text with me this morning. Now, I'm a visual person, so we're going to be using a painting to help us understand the text before us today. This is a painting called Golgotha by Hungarian painter named Mihai Mukacsi. Mukacsi. It gives a visual sense of the cross of Christ as a crossroads. The composition is designed to emphasize the figure of Jesus so that our eyes are drawn toward him. The brightness of his face and body is the, in the looming darkness of the day. It hints that his sacrificial death is a supreme moment of glory rather than the horrific humiliation that his torturers intended it to be. Jesus is looking heavenward and speaking as if this is the moment that he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then there are the criminals who are executed with Jesus. The first is displayed, turned away from Jesus, while spewing his verbal taunts and mockery. His figure is only partially visible, and somewhat outside the scene. It's almost as if he's not really welcomed into the scene. It's as if it demonstrates his spiritual distance from Christ. But the second criminal is displayed more, more completely and with a bowed head. He knew that he was guilty of the crimes committed and that he was getting what he deserved. The painting is filled with a crowd of others as well, some jeering, some nonchalant and bored, some turned away in rejection of Jesus, some with looks of disgust, and some just waiting for the business of the day to be over. All this whole composition vividly portrays their ignorance of just what they are doing. Which character in the painting might you be if you were present at the crucial moment in the history of the world? As I said, though, the focus of our passage is not on the crowd. It's on the final words of the three who were crucified. The spiteful, the sorrowful, and the Savior. Let us consider the first thief, who I call the spiteful. According to verse 39, the first thief railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The Gospel of Matthew indicates that actually both of the criminals at the beginning were reviling Jesus. At the beginning of the crucifixion, both of the criminals were reviling Jesus. 
In one sense, it's no surprise because from the moment of his arrest to the trial before Herod and Pilate, to the torture and beating, and to the crown of thorns thrust upon his head, and to the carrying of the cross to this place called the place of the skull, Jesus was surrounded by bloodthirsty mockers hurling insults at him. So in a way, it's no surprise that the thief would do the same. But in another way, it's rather shocking that this first thief is so enraged. His words have a particular irony. Take a moment to imagine what it would take to be there. What if this were you at your final moments of life on this earth? Facing death for any of us, no matter our age or stage of life, would likely have us speechless because of weeping. Or perhaps it might induce us to simply cry out to our mothers. Yet this criminal uses his final breath not to weep, not to cry out in fear or agony, but to spew venom and hatred at another man who is hanging on the cross next to him. Do you realize how much energy hatred and spite require? I guess for some, anger and hatred is something that feels like life because it has a way of energizing our bodies or, or at least it makes our blood boil. It feels like life. So maybe, maybe that's why this man had the energy or, or took the time to rail at Jesus. It's interesting that the criminal knows that Jesus was heralded as the Christ or the Messiah. I wonder if he had only heard that idea from the jeering crowd that day. Or perhaps he had heard of Jesus at some point in the previous three years of ministry that Jesus had. Who knows? He might have been present during the Sermon on the Mount. Or maybe he was there when Jesus healed a leper or made a blind man see again. Maybe this criminal was a man who had followed Jesus around. Maybe he was hoping for some sort of healing or miracle himself, but didn't get what he wanted from Jesus. Maybe that's why he's so spiteful. In any case, in this moment on the cross, it is clear that he had nothing but spiteful bitterness in his heart, and he had no real expectation when he said to Jesus, save yourself and save us. The ugliness of the verbal cuts are in sharp contrast to the prayer of Jesus as he and these two criminals were being crucified. Pastor Tim preached about that passage last week. Remember that in Luke 23, verse 34, as Jesus and those two criminals are being crucified, Jesus prayed for his killers, for the mocking crowd, and even for these criminals saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And it's with, with that prayer ringing in his ears that this spiteful criminal insults Jesus. Even if the spiteful thief thought 
that Jesus was no more than just another common man, how could he be so cold as to insult the man who had just prayed that prayer? The thief knew that he himself was guilty. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus had prayed to God for the forgiveness of all. His indignation is unjustified. What's worse, his indignation was weaponized. At the crossroads of death, this spiteful thief chooses the path of self-will. He refuses fear or remorse and embraces self-righteous pride. And he lashes out at those around him. This man is condemned not by his crimes, the crimes that brought him to his execution, but he is self-condemned by his own spite against the truth, against what is right and good, and against God himself. From the account of the fall in Genesis 3 through the end of time, this is the spirit of the age. Self-worship that turns into self-tyranny and ultimately to self-condemnation. But all is not hopeless at these crossroads. The passage goes on to tell us about the final words of the second criminal. He's the man I call the sorrowful. Like the first thief, I think it is a worthwhile exercise to wonder how this man knew anything at all about Jesus. Was it just that he was uh, hearing from the crowd's taunts? Or was he nearby when Jesus was interrogated by King Herod and Pontius Pilate? Or had he encountered Jesus in those previous three years of ministry? However he knew whatever he knew about Jesus, his rebuke of the spiteful thief reveals some unexpected things. He understood the fear of God. Remember, he asked that first thief, do you not fear God? The text doesn't tell us, but perhaps these men were Jews. Perhaps this thief knew the scriptures like Psalm 111.10 that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Or Proverbs 14, verse 27, which says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Here at his moment of death, the second thief seems to recognize that it is never too late to turn away from his own sins. Amen? Another thing this thief understood is that they were all, all three of them, were on level ground. That is, he and the spiteful criminal and Jesus too were all about to die. He understood that this was the final crossroads and he was incredulous that that first criminal was still raging in spiteful pride. 
He saw that clearly, and he called it out. He also knew, though, if, if in one sense the, the ground was level, he knew in another sense there was something uneven about this ground between the three of them. The second thief knew, and he confessed out loud, that he and the first thief were guilty, but that Jesus was innocent. He knew he deserved the sentence of death. He knew Jesus did not deserve death, for he, in his own words, had done nothing wrong. He also knew something completely unexpected. He knew that Jesus was who he said he was. The second thief's words show that he understood Jesus was who he said he was. For this criminal, his final moment was a crossroads, and we witness his conversion. In verse 41, the second criminal says, This man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. Now, We've, we know and we've read stories about newspaper stories or seen movies about prisons are full of people who claim they are innocent. What, what prisoner doesn't say, I didn't really do it? Some of them, of course, actually are innocent. We know that too. But prisons are full of people who all claim to be innocent. But do you know anyone who has actually done nothing wrong ever? Have you ever known anyone who was completely innocent in their whole life? That shocking realization revealed to this second thief that Jesus was more than just a man. That is why with his final breath and his final words, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, it's easy to read this text. It's probably familiar to you if you've been a Christian for any length of time and gone through a, a Lenten sermon series like this or gone through Easter celebrations. It's easy to read this text and miss the subtlety of this moment. We have to slow down and we have to think about the contrast between these two criminals. How could one be so spiteful and the other turn out to be sorrowful. The passage shows us that God was at this, cross, this crossroads of life and death for both criminals. God was there. God's grace was offered to both in Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them. But that prayer was condemnation for the one who rejected it, and it was salvation for the one who responded to it. The sorrowful criminal chose honesty about his guilt. He chose clarity about his condition. He chose worship of Jesus instead of worship of himself. His humility is unexpected. His prayer is unabashed. With his final words at the crossroads of life and death, he turned his attention where all of us ought to be looking, to Jesus. We've considered the final words of the spiteful. We've considered the final words of the sorrowful. And now we must consider the final words of the Savior. 
But if it was hard to understand the unjustified indignation of that spiteful thief, and if it was hard to imagine the unexpected humility and the prayer of the sorrowful thief, then it is perhaps impossible to grasp the unequivocal grace of the Savior. Jesus had endured the accusations of the religious leaders. He endured the arrest, the trial, the beating at the hands of Herod and Pilate. He endured the scorn of the bloodthirsty and ignorant crowd, and he endured the piercing of his hands and feet nailed to the cross by the soldiers. And then he prayed that God would forgive them all. He endured the spite of that first thief. But then Jesus received the worship of the sorrowful thief. The one who correctly named him king and the one who called him by name, Jesus. And that name means God saves. In the whole passage, that sorrowful thief was the only one who called Jesus by name. After all of that, what did Jesus say in his final moments? He made a promise. The sorrowful thief had asked, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus promised, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. The second thief received grace, not because he was an innocent man, not because he had opportunity that others didn't, not even because he was sorrowful where the other thief had been spiteful. The second thief wound up in paradise that day because he simply turned to Jesus and he asked. Friends, the cross of Christ is the crossroads for everyone. It is the place where a crucial decision must be made that determines which direction we go. That's what a crossroads is. Jesus is still doubted and ridiculed or explained away by a world captivated by self-worship masquerading as self-love. Jesus is accused by the world of being unjust and unfairly exclusive. But if he is who he says he is, the creator and ruler of all, then is it not just and loving to call out our sin and rebellion? And how can we accuse him of being unjust when his love for us was so great that he prayed, Father, forgive them as he hung on the cross praying, paying the penalty for all of our sins. How can we accuse him of being unjust? If this passage tells us anything, it is this. In the spiteful thief, we see our own hopeless pride. In the sorrowful thief, we see the hope of the gospel. Confess and turn. And in the Savior's love, we see that hope fulfilled. 
As we close, I want to ask of you again, as I asked at the beginning, observe the seriousness of final moments. Linger in the anguish. Let it soften your own heart toward Christ and let it soften your heart toward those who still need Christ. Consider how you might help them turn their gaze to the cross and in simple faith ask Jesus to remember them. Like that sorrowful thief, be vulnerable and transparent with your own confession and then point people to Christ. As a closing prayer, I'd like us all to pray together through a psalm. We read, or Psalm 22 was read out loud earlier, but now I'd like us all to read aloud together through Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a psalm that captures what these two thieves were going through, and it captures the love of Christ, God's grace given through his death. So would you please rise with me? I have the text will be displayed on the screen above, and I'd like us all to read it aloud together as our closing prayer for today. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. Your presence present me from trouble. Sorry. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be with bit and bridle for it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.